Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. Hey there, and welcome once again to another episode of Strange Planets. You have no idea how strange <laughs> it really is. Uh, and if you'd like to get a little bit deeper into Strange Planet, you might want to consider becoming a premium subscriber. It's real easy to do. Just click on the link in the episode notes, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. Strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. There are three premium packages to choose from. Choose the one that's right for you. You gain access to commercial-free listening, a bonus episodes produced especially for premium subscribers, 
and a subscription to my monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. All right, I'm going to hold this up for those of you on uh, Rumble. And if you're listening on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast, you might want to check out the Rumble Channel version as well. But it's a beautiful book of photos and an incredible narrative that we're going to get into shortly. It's called Appalachia, a photographic novel, the riveting account of a forsaken place and a forgotten people. I'm just going to crib here from the back just to set up the story here. The year was 1872 and fighting from the Civil War had nearly torn the United States apart. The young country had survived, but a new one was taking shape directly within its very borders along the rift of earth and rock they called the Appalachian Mountains. A hardy group of Nordic Americans, disenfranchised with the direction of the American nation, began to carve out a slice of the beautiful land they had come to love. The United States still reeling from years of conflict, they were able to form their own republic, connected together by the tribal bonds of kinship and the spiritual ties of their Christian faith. It includes over 400 never-before-seen photographs. Forrest Moretti is with us once again. He graduated from Wake Forest University with a degree in religion and music. He uh, applied his trade in the film industry for several years, working on several Muppet movies, Four Seasons of Dawson's Creek, one of my wife's favorite, and uh, many other films and TV shows as an audio engineer, editor, composer, animator, he is the author of some really must-read books, The Autism Vaccine, Crooked Man-Made Disease, Explained, Unvaccinated, The Moth and the Iron Lung, A Biography of Polio. And uh, the last time he was on the program, we talked about his uh, book, The Tribal Instinct, The Sacred Desire for People and Place. And uh, again, the new one, Appalachia, a photographic novel. Forrest Moretti, welcome back. How are you? Hey, Richard, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Always interesting. Uh, to talk about these things with you. You're my favorite interviewer. I'm sure everyone tells you that, but you've always <laughs> got good questions. So I appreciate I, that. I appreciate you having me on. Well, uh, what a compelling narrative this is. Let's just talk a little bit about this settlement of Nordic Christians yeah. that come from Sweden, Denmark, yeah. uh, and settle in America. Yeah, this is a story, um, you know, a lot of the stuff I write is history-based. I, I do a lot of historical research, and I've tried a few novels here and there, and, and this was essentially a story that had been bouncing around in my mind of a breakaway republic that sort of formed within the United States directly after the Civil War, and they were discontent with the way things were going and had a very tight bond through their heritage their ancestry and um appalachia for a lot of people i'm i'm from north carolina i live in the south and the appalachian region has the feeling the aesthetic uh the vibe if you want to say uh, of its own place there are a lot of people that um, sort of are proud of it in a way that's maybe different than being proud of their state or their country and I just felt like I wanted to capture the story of this people, the rise and fall of, of this nation within a nation. Um, and uh, I wanted to tell it through photographs. I, I thought um, it would be really interesting from a historical perspective um, to use photographs to tell the story instead of just words. Um, a lot of people are having trouble reading these days. It seems I, I think their minds are fried by Twitter or TikTok or stress. And um, I've spoken with other friends of mine who are also writers and they've noticed the same thing. And I just thought, you know, why not? 
let, let's tell a story with pictures as much as words. And and so the book was born, you know, like I said, uh, or like you said, there's over 400 photographs in it. There's, I think, about 38,000 words in it. I mean, there's plenty to read, uh, but there's plenty to look at as well. So it, I think it's something that is interesting visually, certainly, and also visually from a storytelling perspective. Yeah, you go into such great detail. Some of the um, the traditions, the rituals mm -hmm. of these people. There is an interesting wedding ritual when a couple gets married. They place a ring on a sort of, I guess, a throwback to the Viking vessels on a little makeshift boat. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's essentially this sort of fertility ritual, if you want to call it that, of chasing a boat down a creek with the wedding ring tied to the little it's a little boat that they that they make and the man his wedding ring they tie it in the boat and they release it in a creek he has to carry his wife or soon to be wife up up a small mountain and down and then try and find the boat before they lose it because ostensibly his wedding ring will be lost with it and it it's a it's a cute little ritual that is just part of the world building exercise that I was doing is trying to create what would these people be like given they're living in the United States. They, they certainly have the influence of Christianity on them. They have the influence of the, the what we would think of as hillbilly culture, but they also have this Viking Scandinavian influence, this pagan roots that they sometimes inevitably revert back to when things start going poorly, you can sense them sort of falling back onto their older traditions. But the um, the the fertility ritual is just one of several sort of uh, things that I tried to come up with to paint a picture of, of what their culture was like. And um, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's fun. I, I wish people would do it nowadays. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Well, there you are. You just kind of let the cat out of the bag. You said something I came up with. In other right. words... This is indeed a photographic novel. It's a novel. It's a work right. of fiction. I have to admit, I skipped over that first page where you tell us this book is a work of fiction. The people, places, photographs, and historical accounts presented in this book are not real. So this Viking slash Christian settlement in Appalachia that went to war with the federal government because they were a breakaway republic just after the Civil War, all of that... I mean, I bought in up until a certain point, and then I realized, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> this isn't real. Yeah, I think you're, you're probably, you'll roll some pictures in here, I'm sure, yes. for your viewers to see. I have um, a visual effects background that you can kind of start from there. I, I, as a, an eight-year-old kid, uh, I'm old enough to where we had Super 8 film cameras when I was growing up. We didn't have video, we had film, and I would I would make films as a kid, I would use stop motion animation you know where you take a picture and advance the the film one frame and i would even get the developed film back and scratch with a staple i'd scratch a laser beam frame by frame because wherever you scratched the light from the bulb would bleed through and it would look like a laser and uh as i said this was as as a child i was doing this i was obsessed with visual effects and I ended up working, I moved out to Los Angeles and ended up working in visual effects for a while. And so um, given that, I have always kept up with technology and what is possible 
you know, I, as anyone who saw Jurassic Park for the first time, I believe in 1993, I was completely dumbfounded at what they had done to create this believable world where dinosaurs had been brought back to life. It's one of my favorite cinematic moments ever is that first shot of uh, Dennis Quaid and I can't remember her name. Anyway, the, the gal, the older gal, when they're in the Jeep and then she turns his head to see the Brontosaurus pulling it. So given that, I'm, I always keep my finger on the pulse of technology. I, I'm just a single person. I've never had the budget or the time to do anything ambitious other than uh, you may go, you may not know this about me, Richard, but I created several years ago this thing called the Volkswaffe. Have I ever talked to you about that? The Volkswaffe? No. <laughs> yeah, the Volkswaffe was a secret project of Nazi Germany to create what everyone thought was the Volkswagen Beetle, but it was actually a secret military flying fighting machine of terror. Mm. And um, so using 3D animation and these sorts of tools, I created a video straight off the History Channel, let's say, of footage of the Volkswaffe uh, flying through the air, being shot down, uh, crashing into things. It, it was a horrible aircraft, as you can imagine. But um, interestingly, some of the footage, if you go to the YouTube video, it, it's been taken down and put up and it's been pirated so many times. I don't think my original version of it is still even in existence. But the comments will say, oh, the Volkswagen Beetle wasn't really flying. This was footage of them dropping it out of a plane to test its, you know, airworthiness or crashworthiness. The footage is completely fabricated. Uh, people never question whether the footage is real. They question <laughs> whether I'm using it out of context. Yeah. <laughs> which was kind of funny because, as I mentioned, the footage was not real. I, I completely made it. So inevitably, that topic comes up with this book in that it is extremely convincing that this is real history. Yeah. I mean, these are and beautiful sepia tone photographs. Scratches, um, dirt, vignettes, yeah, out of focus. Uh, yeah, the works. So I set uh, the book up in such a way as I don't want the technology to be a distraction. I want you to enjoy the story. I, I didn't want the book to be about the technology. But inevitably, at some point in the book, as the story becomes more and more wild, just as Richard will attest to, there's a point where your spidey senses finally kick in and you say, wait a minute, surely I would have heard about this part of the story at some point in all of my history classes and all of my book reading. There's no way I didn't hear about this particular part of the story. So I try to have fun with it in the spirit of Blair Witch Project, something like that. I, I'm not trying to make a deal out of the technology, but inevitably there's a point as you read along that you will reach the point of inflection where you start scratching your head and go, wait, I'm going to go back and read that first page, that little uh, boilerplate statement that he said at the beginning, because something here is not quite adding up. And that's fine. I'm fine with people doing that. I'm not trying to fool anyone. I just want them to go along for the ride and if you tell them that at the very beginning, you know, maybe it's not as fun. All right. We'll take a quick time out, come back and uh, continue to speak with Forrest Moretti, Appalachia, a photographic novel. Stay tuned for more.
Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. We're now crossing a zone of turbulence. Please return your seats and food trays to their upright position and make sure your carry-on luggage is safely stowed. You're about to leave everything you know behind. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Strange Planet. All right, there's the new one from Forrest Moretti, Appalachia, a photographic novel. Emphasis on novel, folks. <laughs> he got me. He had me right in, until, uh, well, we won't give it all away. There's a section in there about the, the uh, etherberry elixir, and that's when uh, my spidey senses did start to tingle. Anyway, we're talking about these incredible photographs, over 400 photographs, and there's a reason why they've never been seen before, because <laughs> they, they didn't exist uh, except in the, the, the mind of Forrest Moretti. So let's dive in here and talk about yeah. how, how you created these amazing museum-quality photographs. Well, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, it, technology has advanced. If, if your readers and listeners uh, and viewers are not aware of this, technology has advanced in the last few years, such to the point where creating images doesn't take years of experience like it used to, learning software, learning how cameras work, learning motion blur and depth of field and exposure and all these sort of cinematic terms that one would normally need to learn to make a convincing image. So there are tools out there now that will allow you to create images. Uh, there's tools like Dolly, which is a, an artificial intelligence driven um, component of ChatGPT, which is its own artificial intelligence chatbot. There's a tool called Midjourney. Uh, Photoshop has tools within it uh, that allow you to do this. There, there's all sorts of tools out there that are using um, a technology called stable diffusion and other techniques to create images using all that it's learned about how images look and feel. And most of the stuff you see out there is kind of goofy. A lot of it's disturbing in that it's sort of uncanny valley, if you're familiar with that term. It's sort of this, the uncanny valley, if you don't know what that is, is this 
point at which something feels human, like let's say a, a sack of flour in a Disney animation. This sack of flour is dancing around and, mm-hmm. oh, isn't that cute? The sack of flour is happy. And then it's leaning over. Oh, it's sad. And then the sack of flour has a mouth and it's talking and then it has eyes. And there's a point at which it becomes so nearly human that it's disturbing. And it goes from, you know, cute, endearing, cute to completely terrifying. And that's a term that people have used in terms of 3D animation, like the Polar Express, if you've ever seen that film. Yeah, it didn't do well because of that, right? Yeah, it has the uncanny of valley disadvantage in that they tried to be photoreal and it hit this point at which it kind of freaked people out because it wasn't real, but it was trying to be real. And, and Pixar has always known this. They've done a really good job. If you look at people's ears in Pixar, you'll see they never have all the folds of a human ear. They have like one little dent in it. And they realize, don't put that detail. The ear starts to make people feel weird if you make it real. You've got to leave it cartoony. So I always point out the Pixar ear. And that's they've avoided the Uncanny Valley because of that. Technology has progressed. Uh, there's a Star Wars film that came out recently that had... Um, General Tarkin, you know, uh, Peter Cushing, uh, Peter Cushing, a, an incredible actor who's passed away. They needed him back. Same for Princess Leia. They have millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars of research and development in software, artists, rendering equipment. And even a 10 year old kid can still kind of point to it and go, I'm not totally buying it. it it's it's not quite there yet. Now, they're good. Don't get me wrong. These are incredible things, but they're not there yet. These tools that I'm telling you about mid-journey, the stable diffusion tools, they're able to get past the uncanny valley part. They are allowing people to create new images that don't have any feeling of forgery. They feel completely believable. Now, if you look closely, some people will start to spot, uh, you know, one of the famous hallmarks of this imagery is, oh, look at their hands. They have six fingers or their hands are all mangled. And, and I sort of took great pains to avoid any of these uh, giveaways. Now, I'm, it's not a perfect book. I'm sure somebody who knows where to look might spot, you know, the signs of a forgery. But I've tried to do my best to not make it distracting. And part of that is these feel like antique photos. There's something about it feeling in the past that is um, disarming enough that your your defenses don't go up like they would if it was pure color, the future or present day, you know, America. You, you're not on guard like you are when it's a historical picture. And right. I think that's part of a lot of the reason it works is that it 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 doesn't you don't think this is fake you just sort of accept it because of all the dirt and grime and all the photos and all the ugly people who are never smiling which was <laughs> one of the most difficult technological hurdles is everyone is beautiful in computer world and I didn't want beautiful people I wanted ugly hideous people who right. never smiled and that was nearly impossible to do right weather worn Senator yeah. Whitford, for example. Yeah. So explain, I understand a little bit about ChatGPT. My son uploads the Rumble version of the podcast. He uses AI for the thumbnails. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't understand how you create 
something like a Senator Whitford. I'll insert these pictures, but I'm just going to yeah, hold that up there as well. Yeah. I mean, that's a younger Senator Whitfield. That's a younger Whitford Senator Whitfield. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. is that, how is that created? Is Do you take another photograph as an, and it overlays something or is it created at a whole cloth? It's well, this is gets a little technical here, but you don't need any photographs to reference for a lot of things. If you're trying to create uh, multiple versions of someone, you have to give it some hints as to what they're supposed to look like. If you look um, early on in the book, I'm trying to give you a page number. Um, there's uh, a guy that I show at three stages in his life. He, um, oh, it's page 22 and 23. I, I, I think we have the same page numbers. It's Jeremy Whitethorn, who's considered the founder. Yes. The found, one of the founders. Yeah, now, if Jeremiah you'll notice, Whitehorn, yeah. Yeah, it, uh, it's got a picture of him as a young child. Well, let's say uh, 12 or 13, what I say, 14 years old. And then it's got a picture of him as an adult. And then it's got a full page of him as, as an older man. And if you'll notice, he, he has a an injury from his time in the Civil War. He's lost an eye. Right. And, and, and that's in two of the pictures. So it, it's a challenge to create a chronology of the same person at different ages. So in this particular instance, his eye was something I manually did uh, myself because I wanted to give some continuity between, you know, his, let's say, 25-year-old self and his 60 to 70-year-old self. But getting the hairline, the hair, the facial, like the facial structure the same definitely requires a lot of hinting and massaging and frustration, but with patience, uh, you can eventually get there. And, okay. and the technology is not perfect, but it, you can do you can do some pretty amazing things with it. Yeah, I don't want to get too deep into the the reads yeah. here, but just if you can give me a sense, like because I have no you know kind of concept of how this would work. Like okay. for example, we have got you the like take you through it, so to speak. Yeah, like take let's say the, for the fourteen year old. Jeremiah Whitehorn, who's in a Confederate uniform. Yeah, yeah. You just create a photograph of a, a young boy with a serious expression wearing a Confederate uniform. I mean, how does it work? Yeah, I, I could almost pull it up here and show you the exact steps I'd use to create him. But uh, yeah, it, it would be a, a description of what you want to see. And, and it might start off with um, 1800s black and white daguerreotype, which is, you know, one of the early types of photography uh black and white photography sepia tone you know all, all the terms you've already you you know these terms you've seen them you might describe them and you might say uh young caucasian boy civil war uniform soldier mountains you know describe the background and and you would get some pictures back and probably most of them would be horrible and 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 maybe completely wrong and there, you know, you may repeat this a couple of times and then you find a diamond in the rough that's like, oh, oh, this is pretty close. This is pretty close. And so you can take that image and, and sort of feed it back into the system and start iterating on that image, giving it additional hints along the way. No smile, no smile, a, a frequent mm -hmm. prompt of mine. No smile, please, no smile, because people smile in pictures and you can imagine the software is training on pictures that exists on the internet and most people are smiling in pictures. 
yeah, that's essentially it is, is give it some starter hints, look for that diamond in the rough and then start single that out and start iterating on that and, and hoping that you can kind of get it to where you want. It's beautiful. And it's at the same time, it's kind of chilling that this type of technology exists. It allows you to do that. Uh, I had no idea we were anywhere near this development. Yeah, it's, it's come a long way. It's, it's, come beyond what I show in the book in that people are doing this with video. Now, admittedly, the video is pretty goofy now. It's very limited. Uh, it's essentially extrapolated movement of a still image. You may have seen this in Facebook. They've kind of done this thing where they add a faux 3D effect. When you scroll, it kind of like feels like you're shifting around the image. Yes. That was a really early version of sort of using artificial intelligence in a way to extrapolate what might be behind the image so that when you move around, it can show a little bit of parallax, which is sort of giving you a hint of what's behind it or what might be in front of it. And that was very goofy, um, but they've come a long way. I, I, I'm terrified of this, to be honest with you. Uh, and, and we can talk about that at some point if, if you want, but uh, the video will be very interesting in that, you know, I don't know if you ever had me on to talk about Massa Demnata, which was the first novel I wrote. Yeah. But essentially, Massa Demnata is is a story about a it's a dystopian fantasy about um, a world in which uh, they've essentially created a, a thing called the collective, which is a way you can store your memory through something called Neurojax. <laughs> Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. And why did they do this? Well, you don't know this in the first book but who knows if i'll ever finish the trilogy so i'll just go ahead and tell you uh they i hint at it in the story they did this because no one knew what was true anymore there was no way to discern reality from forgery other than what your memory was of experiencing something so they created an, a, a memory store called the collective which was the ultimate source of truth if you could find it in the collective, if somebody had seen it and witnessed it, you knew it was true because otherwise, you know, you have, uh, you know, security footage of the president of Venezuela murdering three kids. It's like, we don't know if that's true. And, and, and chaos, the world descended into chaos because no one knew what was true anymore. So this was the lone source of truth left. And you can imagine as stories go, mistakes were made and even the lone source of truth becomes corrupt and that's when things go south and that's where we're heading because we're not going to yeah. know what's true i mean yeah if, if you rip the first page out of this book and you put this on a library shelf and i mean you could create a thousand different narratives using this technology and in a hundred years who's going to know yeah well this is the interesting you, you you're you're a history history fan right you, you read history yes i do and, and you know the story you know the saying um, history is written not with a pen, but the sword. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a million variations of that. In that, the, the guys that win write the history books, right? Or there's the ones that are considered true. So propaganda has gone on for time eternal. You know, everyone's history always portrays them winning. Um, so that, in a way, is a discernment problem that we've dealt with. Probably not very well. Uh, you know, I used to believe in the polio story. For instance, I thought the polio vaccine had saved humanity from certain destruction. It wasn't until I was an adult that I started reading and finally sort of connected the dots on that. There's lots of other stories. 
yet to be discovered, I'm sure. This is part of the reason you and I are curious individuals. We want to know the truth, so we look. So it is an age-old problem in a way. The new technology has created a problem in that it's believable to the extent that our eyes see it, our ears hear it. Uh, even people speaking now, that was always the, the real barrier was, well, they won't be able to portray people speaking. Sure, you can make it look like they're saying something, but their voice will be fake. We've gotten past that now, and you can synthesize people's voices. If you have a 10-minute sample of them talking, you can make them say anything you want. So how do we as a human species deal with discernment? How do we deal with law and order in a world where no one knows what's true anymore? I mean, that's one of the big questions about this technology. Forrest, another time out, Appalachia, a photographic novel. It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. That's what uh, the new technology allows us to do. Redefine reality. Create new realities. Appalachia photographic novel with 400 never before seen photographs. And that's because they were created using artificial intelligence. Now they are tethered to a human being, this technology. You have to be pretty creative. You have to have a lot of knowledge. You have to have you know, knowledge of photography and and um, history and all of these things in order to use the AI to create something like this. But still, uh, it, it's pretty chilling that you're able to, like if, if you look at these people, they don't exist, these photographs, they look so real, these people do not exist. Do they bear a resemblance to anyone? I mean, are they based on, are they based on photographs of real people that can be found online? Not to the point you're likely to be able to identify the source in a way that would stand up in a copyright lawsuit. That That's sort of the standard by which people who make the software work is if the originality of it is such that it could be claimed you are stealing someone else's photograph, they won't do it. So uh, this is why they wouldn't train the software, which is a term they use in machine learning and artificial intelligence. They wouldn't train the software on a data set with 20 pictures in it because the, the likelihood of it being considered a copyright infringement would be too high. So instead we have millions of pictures, it, it, probably more than millions. You know, this is essentially what Facebook has started doing and everyone is sort of horrified to find out like, oh, Facebook was free? Well, not really free. The reason it was free is because now all the pictures you uploaded of your family, all the stories you told are now being harvested uh, to feed their giant AI boogie monster. And people are not too happy about that. So, uh, you know, you could at least rest easy in that. You, you're never going to see you know, a picture of your kid come out on a calendar or in, in some commercial on TV. It, it, they won't look like that. There, there's too many variations. Um, they may look like that by luck, but I don't want to give insinuate that I'm not terrified of this technology because if anything... Uh, this book was an experiment and me trying to understand, is this technology going to destroy humanity? Is it as scary and as bad as people say it is? Because I'm in that camp. Uh, I, I, I was in that camp before I did the book. You know, I've spoken about transhumanism. This is my fear of mRNA vaccines and things like that is this sort of monkeying around with 
what it means to be human. I've 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 got a tremendous problem with that. And and by extension, artificial intelligence, particularly where you're creating sentient beings that have a conscience or have a philosophical outlook on life and aren't just sort of a chatbot to answer questions about where the nearest burger or ice cream shop is. I have a problem with that. Um, so in making this book, it, it was an incredible moral dilemma for me. I was uncomfortable the entire time. I was stupefied at what I was able to do. It, it was probably one of the most profound creative expressions I've ever been able to do as a human. And, and I've done a lot of crap in my life. I've recorded albums. I've, re I've composed songs for orchestras. I've done some film scoring. I've done painting, written books. You know, I've done... I'm a sort of creative type person and I've done a lot of things. And this was by far one of the most profound things I've ever experienced in that I, as a human being sitting in my truck in a boat marina with a hundred bucks and my laptop was able to create this entire world in a way that a hundred dollar, a hundred million dollar feature film couldn't do. A hundred dollars in, in software. It's well, hundred dollars well, in software. Yeah, yeah. You buy a subscription to this and that for 50 bucks here, 20 bucks there. And, and, um, this book was created in under a month from start to finish, literally under a month. Now I write fast. I'm able to do books fairly quickly, uh, compared to a lot of people, but this was, was insane, uh, to be able to do, you know, this book, it's a, you know, it's a huge book. It's, it's a, it's a, the scope of it's huge. This is a, a feature film. If if you were to put this, take this in book form and put it on uh, in film, it would be a feature length film or a TV series. Yeah, I mean maybe a series. Yeah. So uh, getting back to the story of, you know, there's a question, will AI kill us? You know, is this dangerous? And, and I sort of break it out into two things. You know, you think about the art of uh, how is it going to affect art and how is it going to affect vocation? So I, I work as a computer programmer by trade. You know, I'm a software developer. And, and I worry about it in that um, these tools can create computer code just by describing something. In fact, you can give it a, a picture of a website and say, hey, figure this out for me. Will you recreate this in code? And it can do it. Now, in the past, they might have hired somebody to do that for $3,000. Now you can do it for $5. Um, my my a family member of mine is an attorney and a lot of the contracts uh, he writes i'm sure could easily um be cribbed as you said from a description of okay here's the related parties here are their address here are their names this is the executor this is the executee uh, so on give me a contract a bulletproof contract you know that's valid in these three states and within 30 seconds you have it so vocationally, I definitely have a concern that people's jobs will be taken away. Um, artistically, it's a different story in that, okay, this book could have never been made any other way. I, I, I worked as a visual effects artist for years and to create an entire world of these people and the places and their customs and their clothing and all the, the, the world would have taken tens of millions of dollars and it probably wouldn't have looked as good and it would have never been feasible for a book. You know, books just don't make a lot of money. Uh, movies, maybe. 
Um, so I couldn't have done this book, but there are other art forms. Concept artists, for instance, are, are, are should be deathly afraid of this in that their job is being creative and expressing that creativity in a way that others can see what's in their mind or by relaying what someone has asked them to show. And uh, this technology is such that you can just churn out hundreds and hundreds of variations of, of wild concepts. Um, and, and those artists are, are, are already losing their jobs for it. Yeah, we knew that with the robot apocalypse or whatever you want to call it, that the the people that flip burgers and 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 uh, all the you know the manual labor type jobs they would be they would be gone. I don't think we anticipated that it would leapfrog right over that and come to the for the content creators so quickly. And here we yeah. are. Uh, we don't need um, you know when they make a movie now they don't need extras sitting on a, in a jury. That's AI. They don't need. I mean, I have a friend of mine who's a, a, a writer and um, he just created a, just for fun, uh, he created, he's got a website and he has AI writing scripts and budgeting the scripts. So you get the budget and you get the script. Now he admits the scripts aren't very good, most of them, but it, it's just kind of a proof of, of concept. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, I've got some good news. Uh, don't Don't cut me off before I share the good news, but. Uh, uh, one more bit of bad news is, you know, people will say, well, the scripts aren't very good and AI will know. And the reality is it's going to keep getting better. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people used to say that about Gary, uh, what's his name? Gary Kasparov and um, Deep Blue and yes. chess. You know, the, the, the computer will never be a human being. And they kept getting closer and closer and closer. And now they won't even play the computers anymore because the computers will win. And that's disheartening in a way. I think humanity's gotten over it. Um, so uh, there is an effect, um, uh, you can loosely call it hallucination, where essentially the training data that artificial intelligence used to train on, you can argue in a way, it will never get better than it is now in that at this point, any new data is likely to contain artificial intelligence generated data mm, so point. at this point let's say two three years ago when they first started training these models as we call them that that was pure human well mostly human generated content from here on out it, the hallucination effect is it's going to start seeing itself in the training data and in fact the uh there's a, uh, I think he's a Hawaiian guy that's saying the somewhere over the rainbow. Yes, he's kind of yes. that big guy. He's yeah. got a name I won't even try to pronounce. Israel, I think is his yes. first name. Yes. Um, I don't know if it's true now, but as of a few days ago, if you Google his name, the very first image that's returned is not a picture of him. It's an AI generated image of him. Oh, isn't that interesting? Which other AI will suck that data in and use it to train as to what he's going to look like. So you have this feedback mechanism to where he'll become a caricature of himself and you won't even know what the real guy actually looked like. So all that sounds horrible, right? Uh, it, it sounds gloom and doom. But it, it, if I may uh, just give you a bit of, of good news here. Please, this is, please. This is, <laughs> we need it, right? Um, people fear AI taking over the world. And, and I, I saw the creator movie that came out recently with my son. This was on our mind. I was making the book. And it was heavily on my mind. I was really disturbed at what I was able to do. Um, and we saw the film. 
the film is incredibly disturbing, but I, I had a profundity. I had an epiphany on the way back from the movie theater. We stopped at Five Guys and got a double cheeseburger. And I was sitting there thinking, and I said, you know what? Um, AI, increasing levels of artificial intelligence require increasing levels of human intelligence. The problem is increasing levels of artificial intelligence create humans with less intelligence. Okay. So therein lies the problem. Uh, I'll say the solution mm. in that anybody will tell you competency crisis, whatever name you want to ascribe to. If you go through a drive through these days, you know, you're lucky if you can get your order right. You're lucky if they can give you change, if you pay with cash, whatever. You'll see that the IQ, the collective IQ of humankind is 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 descending quickly because we outsource all our thinking already. This isn't even AI related. You know, how many phone numbers do you have memorized now compared to how many you may have had as a kid? You know, how much do you write with a pen and pencil or pen and paper uh, compared to typing or letting AI sort of autocomplete your sentences for you? So AI, in my mind, will run out of steam well before it can take over the world because there won't be humans to sustain it. And I don't just mean the technology. I mean the infrastructure to build the robots, to build the chips, to build the factories. Everything will fail long before AI can take over. So you you can just relax and enjoy the ride. Don't worry about artificial intelligence taking over the world. Sure, it may destroy a lot of stuff along the way. But somebody like me, who's sort of a, a Luddite to begin with, you know, Amish 2.0, that's my book, you know, <laughs> my tar term from Tribal Instinct. I'm kind of looking forward to it. You know, I want to see it. I want to see the wobble, the oscillation, <laughs> the point at which artificial intelligence officially starts to take us backwards. And the reality is, I think we've already started. We, we've already started. We've reached the the apogee of human achievement and, and we're getting stupider by the day. So we'll go down here and then we'll rise from the ashes again. You and I might, might not be alive to see it, but I think it'll be fun either way. Appalachia, a photographic novel. And uh, how do we get a copy? It's beautiful. I appreciate it. It's on Amazon, just print only. Um, it, you really need to see it in print. It, it, a digital version of this, it, it just won't do it justice. These are these are pretty amazing pictures, and, and you need to get the print version. There's no audiobook. It's just print only, and I also have it on my personal website at forestmoretti.com. But hopefully, if the book is popular enough, I can actually do a reprint, you know, of like archival quality print, so that it will really do the. The, the photographs justice but the book that you have richard is it's still a nice book it's a beautiful book forrest i can't thank you enough thank you uh, and again forestmoretti.com forestmoretti.com it's the best place to go yeah f-o-r-r-e-s-t-m-a-r-e-a-d-y the uh, link is in the episode notes all right forrest thank you sure thing thanks richard a new richard Serrett's a strange planet drops every monday wednesday and friday 